every now and then I like to look back at the earlier days of our fellowship and that of Alcoholics Anonymous, which gave us the 12 steps and so much else. Welcome to episode 312 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Julie, Lori, Sarah, Penelope, Jessica, and Mary. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Julie, Lori, Sarah, Penelope, Jessica, and Mary for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Today, as we approach the end of 2019, I'm pleased to share this recording I found of Bill Wilson, who was co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, speaking at the Alcoholics Anonymous International Convention in Long Beach, California in 1960. The recording also includes brief remarks by Lois Wilson, who was co-founder of Al-Anon, Ebby T., who introduced Bill to the Oxford groups, from which AA grew, I guess, and Sister Ignatia, who was an early supporter of AA and cared for thousands of alcoholics in Akron, Ohio. Bill is followed by Mort J., who established the first public AA meeting in Los Angeles. The recording's a little rough. I have tried to clean it up as best I can. It is still a little difficult to follow in spots for which I apologize, but the information is, I think, important. And the event must have happened outside because you will hear an occasional airplane flying over. I've done my best to remove the airplane noise as well. It's always a good idea to follow the country and the country where we are. It isn't the West Coast, and I think all any meetings open something like this. Hi, folks. <laughs> I suspect that there are some, not knowing I spoke too well, who suppose that Alcoholics Anonymous is a sort of a modern and praiseworthy fireproofing against whiskey. <laughs> and so praise God it is. And we have needed that proofing. But it isn't quite as simple as that. Under the grace of God, there has been expelled from us an obsession, a veritable lunacy that has plagued men and women for time out of mind in an unprecedented way. And we have been liberated from that. We have been free. But still, that is not all. You and I know that we are a people who have pursued the wrong kind of liberty, have looked in the wrong direction for freedom, and now some of the time at least we are looking in the right direction. 
Saul right principles and toward him who presides over Saul. Therefore, in his more deeply meaningful sense, AA is the quest for freedom under God. And this freedom, in its very forms, is grown among And I think one of the greatest and deepest satisfactions that any of us can have is to feel that again we are citizens of the world. Not so much that we are lauded by the world, but that we hold the world's respect and genuine affection. And seldom has Jewish experiences been so effective as the warm welcome that this great city, this mayor, the several city staff. What mayor's presence means here, what all this careful, painstaking labor on our behalf means, is that we are received back as citizens of the world, worthy of understanding, worthy of respect, and worthy of the list when we need it. So do you, Mr. Mayor, on this respect, for which even my adjectives are not sufficient, and to all of your departments, and to the host committee of AAs around here, and all the myriad of people who have helped them. One of the themes of this convention is, of course, dedication. We have seen it here in our friends and among our A-holes to an unprecedented degree. Thank you, sir. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Leonard Harrison just spoke to you. Someday, not too far away, there will occur an event which is always critical in all societies and governments, wherever it occurs. And that is the transference of service leadership from the originators to whoever is to succeed them. In our case, to be this board of trustees, composed in part of great friends, who are the not our governors, but our servants and our administrators. Leonard is the oldest in service on that board. Tomorrow night we'll talk a little more about it. But I'm sure that he communicated something more to use in words. He spoke in the language of the heart. And in Leonard and successors like me. And in such drunks as we can supply to the outfit, none of them to stay in there too long, you understand. <laughs> <laughs> 
in the future if we as a society do our part. So, may on behalf of you all, I thank Lenny, Boris Tank, and Boris Place. I think each one of us is deeply sensible that gratitude is one of the finest emotions that can move the human heart. I think each of us, as he thinks of this occasion, renews his gratitude to Almighty God, or in God saves us in a miracle, with more evidence than for uncounted ones. And that's each of us commences to think of how this message restarts. And how we were able to live long enough to be there to receive it. And in the case of each of us, somebody was there, somebody sustained it, somebody tolerated us in our crazy quest for these wrongs, freedom. And this was very often the one who stayed on and on until the quest had ended in this all but fatal cause of sack. This veritable prison in which he or he, if he be a husband, may have lived. So I think it is next in order for me to present to the Lord, who, like many a woman, stayed on to what seemed a certain end, only to stand here today with me looking at what is just the sunrise about the most not love. Thank you very much. And I want to add my thanks to this wonderful hospitality to have us here in California. It is just a warm thing, and Bill and I appreciate it so much. And I want to express here, all all, my gratitude to the great confidence for the past 25 years. And in my gratitude, I'm tuned to you all, newcomers as well as old-timers. For no one lives in any chain is more important than another. All carry the message and all share with each other what they have found in AA. It is this sharing 
that makes AA such a power for good. Much of the world, particularly in this atomic age, is hungry for proof of the power of good over evil. You, AA, have given us this proof. You have demonstrated that lives can be changed, no matter how low or sordid they have become. That men and women, through God's grace, can be lifted up and re-motivated to become constructive, useful forces. This has been an inspiration and a renewal of faith in many people throughout the world, as well as the families of AA. I believe this miracle of changed lives has occurred because the principles of AA coincide with the highest principles we know with the fundamental laws of the universe. So these principles teach us how to step aside so God can act through us. I'm particularly grateful to AA for showing you personally the way to a better and more useful life. For many years, AA's example has made many of us wise and wisdom, not indeed by the self death. Ourselves and to help others who still are frustrated and alone to do that work. The Alamon family groups are a spontaneous response to this vital need. Still speaking for all the wives and husbands, fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, children and friends of alcoholics, I want to thank you, AA, not only for the happy homes you have restored to us but the privilege of following the AA way of life for ourselves. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, can you all hear the speakers clearly? Are we speaking too softly or too loud? Thank you. I was the one who propounded that extremely foolish question because sound in all its aspects is especially of this region. Now, considering further people for whom we are grateful, people who have been the carriers, the immediate carriers of this message to us, we could not possibly stand in the same relation to anyone else in the world. There is something singular about it. There is in it a very special language of the heart, a very special kind of gratitude. And I'm beginning to talk, as you see, about my own sponsor, Abby. And here he says, praise God, 
in great form and good order. Abby's had his difficulty. And I would venture that considering these obstacles, his demonstration is a whole lot better than my own. It was hard to fireproof him against Whitney, and awfully easy to fireproof me. And I think he deserves the greater credit for his wonderful comeback. The grand dramatic moment, if not the, a great dramatic moment in my life, was the time half drunk when the telephone rang and Eddie was in New York sober. The next moment was when I saw him in my doorway and sensed that there was a subtle change. And then came that vital exchange of communication over a kitchen table and a great big clock in the gym which I was thinking, and he was not. Ah, yes. For me and for him, that recollection is imperishable, because there, one of the first parts of man was just, which was to kindle this worldwide spread of our so, Eddie, come on up and have a go. Over the years, I've been on in and out of that, the initial 
two and a half years of my sobriety in the beginning. And I don't, seven years ago, I doubted very much that I was going to get through that time. I had little thought of being out here, but I'll remember. I nearly seven years to buy it, which I have had in Texas. And if it means anything, it means to anybody that's having trouble, try it again. Get up and try it again. You won't do it yourself. But she will get the help from a higher power, I'm sure of that. And I have much more to say. That's a good. And to me, especially, Mesha, I've heard of her work over all these years, but this is my first time with any opportunity. And of course, I have to see the old person here when they are. And my gratitude to God and to all the people, and there he is. Thank you. Ain't that great? We've gone out here. One of the dearest friends who says she died and never can. She wouldn't admit it. She's on a frail side. By common sense standards, she shouldn't have been here. But she couldn't help it. I'm referring to Sister Ignatia. And I wish that every one of you could know her as Dr. Bob and I, and all those to whom she ministered knew her. You know, in the whole world, and this world of ours of AA, individuals, groups, societies, governments, and the like, are always in the process of choosing destruction, mediocrity, or greatness in a certain action. In any we say that our close step work is carrying the message to the other fella or gal. Well, this is our move towards latent in action and spirit. In our modest work, practically any act of AA is done in 12-step jobs, maybe a score, maybe a hundred. But what about a person who has done 12,000? And I won't stop with the quantity. The quality, after all, is the same. Besides, this was Dr. Bob's part. 
And this lady was certain, if we call Dr. Bob the prince of all of the 12 steppers, this is the princess, and I introduce you to Princess Ignatius.
very interesting that, as we understand it, the nine area is something more than fireproofing. And something goes through and behind the fire and puts it out. Maybe I should just give you the speed point of the several communications as they gather together into this wide open river of power to folks of our time. Many of these communications were unusual, some almost unique. And long before I ever thought of getting well, these communications are beginning. And I think the first crucial one was in the office of a doctor. I find the psychiatrist and psychologists say that we folks are kind of dreamers and visionaries, but I do think we like words that treat images for images. So let us think back together to the 1930s. For that wonderful doctor and truly great man, Dr. Carl Jung, stopped dead in his office, talking to a patient, a drunk who had come from America a year before, the one called Roland, who had exhausted every resource that he knew, a gentle death we wanted to get well. And Roland has been with Dr. Jung here. And he's seen a great deal of his insides, fish worms of various sizes and dimensions have been lifted out, and uh, he uh, knew more about those hidden springs and motivated him. Well, already he had a deep confidence in the humanity of Dr. Young and his voice. So he left there with a feeling of security. But he's away only a little while. And then that obsession, one of the grimmest known to men, the lady told on him, he's drunk, he's sitting before Dr. Young. Well, it's so changed. For it was the will of Providence that he not only sat in the presence of a great physician, he sat in the presence of a man who was great in spirit and action. And to be great in spirit and action, that means greatness and humility. Let me recount in effect what the conversation was. Said Roland to Dr. Carl, you were my court of last resort. Tell me where I'm seen. Then come one of the founders of society, one of the world's leading doctors, and he says very simply, I thought, Roland, when you first came, 
that you might be one of those occasional. Yes, to be frank, rare cases in which my art might help you, might bring you to recovery. But you are not. This I'm sure. You are a drunk of that. I assure you, to mention that there is nothing that I know of in my resources that I can do to help you. Well, now, to put it in any vernacular, what do you think this did to Rome? Here was the God of Science, the court of last resort. We have uh, in AA uh, this technique of uh, helping people to hit box, and it requires no imagination on the greater part of this audience to see that Roland hit bottom with one hell of a bang. <laughs> so the humility of this man, already as great as the world. To say, of myself, in this case, I'm not. I'm probably We said more. It was also important to us. This was the turning point, without which we might not be here at all. Said Roland. But is there no, no resource? And the doctor said, yes. But it's very strange. I am speaking of a transforming spiritual experience. Rose Wallen hates me to say, oh, you mean faith? Gee, I was once in this book, and that's the one I, I, I got faith. Rowan said, uh, doctor, well, this is fine, Rowan. But I am talking about something uh, that is the ultimate in faith, or is the ultimate in the gift of, the gift of God. I mean a transforming that will solely motivate you as to restore you to insanity by some this lunacy. Maybe you don't like the word, but I'm talking about conversion. I'm talking about spiritual awakening, spiritual experience. You know, the centuries, no religion, sometimes it's stuff. But I can't say why the lightning strikes here. Or there, down there. So put yourself in the religious atmosphere of your own choice. Admit that you can't do it. Turn to whatever God you think there is. Well, maybe. I wish you well. So Roland did. Found himself in a group, and we tied up with the age of to whom we all might. Talk more about that another time. And the whole result is right. Not all of a sudden, but he was released. He got sober. There weren't a lot of drunks around the after group that time. This time, uh, Sam will say with some amusement that they were under slight disapproval in this period. As they were, he had housed some up in an apartment house right next to his church. And the boys had got sued, and they were throwing shoes through the plate glass windows. <laughs> anyway, 
Anyway, Roland was a recovered alcoholic and having suffered this way, he heard about my uh, school chum up in Vermont, some arrested, had got his father's car out after escapades without number, and the big payoff, and the state road to the booby hatch was opened up by this delightful episode. He takes the car, and he runs it off the road at high speed during the night, into the side of a farmhouse, into the kitchen. The car goes right through the wall. It pushes his shoulder side. A fighting woman is there. And my friend steps out of the door that was still open and bows deeply and said, Madam, how about a cup of coffee? This is us. So the neighbor said, well, this is it. We're going to bug it right now. Well, at this minute, uh, Roland, someone in the neighborhood heard about this thing. He got a hold of Abby, and he gave him the Oxford Group business, and uh, we had the essence of it to get on it to yourself with other people, to make restitution and work with other folks. You and I know the story. He gave him that, but he gave him the benefit of one drunk talking to another. And he added still another ingredient to this communication. This verdict is this great man of science. This God of science. About the them.
awful well to dominate. Then I came across the principal walked in one, one morning, and with his dreadful impact on a jaw, a truly shattering on one, me on me, he said that he himself had shot the night before. I haven't just liked him in the last three years. This is not freedom. I'm imprisoned by my own emotions and my lack of control of My will to this, that, or the other thing could accept no decision. So I turned on myself and the question. Then read, poor man. Well, by my life, began fighting. The Lord spoke to some right up there. I began to fear and every so tender. She brought me back to house. We're married in World War One. I'm in New Bedford, Massachusetts. All this time, no drink. Killed too many in the world. Just win all the time. So I'm really down on booze, but here I am in New Bedford, Massachusetts, the cotton town in wartime, and the society folks were entertaining. I fell off awkward at these parties, saw Butler for the first time. I was as scared of him as I was of bankers. <laughs> And I thought, well, I'll take one and go to Fox Cocktail. And I took one, two, three. And I know, just as you know, that those drinks meant more to me than folks who are drinking for relaxation. Even relaxation is an American reason to We're drinking for a deeper reason. This began to solve my life problems. Besides always, even today, I seem to be walled off from other people. I couldn't get through this strange barrier and get dropped with the bank. It's gone. I'm part of life at last. I belong. I can communicate. So I start a quest for freedom with the bottle to be my elixir of life. Well, turned out to be quite a mistake. <laughs> World War over, back to New York. Here, I'm Monk City Falls, the old inferiority, the bottle again. Oh, I was suffering young men, stand to hangovers, but always in that episode, always always feeling well. There must be something terribly wrong, me denying it. I remember one time while I still thought the drinking was, uh, uh, you know, the fault of a good man. Uh, and we had made uh, some dough in the Wall Street boom. And I bought a tankard uh, about as long as from here at that third foot line. Uh, so he's up in the town here. 
near my brother-in-law's place. I was supposed to show up for supper. I got talking with the man at the garage. I forgot about supper. I forgot about Lord. It was kind of a bitter night. We needed more garage to get warm. And we kept warming ourselves. And finally, I, I realized that I had to start for my brother-in-law for supper several hours later. I started up the street, and suddenly I realized that it was time to go to bed. <laughs> and uh, there was a field inside here, paralleling the street, and uh, I wandered over in it, and I laid down, and it was a wintry night, and I woke up. Crazy, I was close. I got off it. Up the hill to the main street, started down the main street, looked down, and my God, I had on my coat and vest and my, but no pants. Right down the main street. Oh, God, there's no question. Oh, my God. Uh, Pardon me, he will be. Maybe was in here. And since I was minus my pants, the unspoken question was, where have you been? <laughs> you know, the very next morning, we found that field, and I was a child, at least from one sin, when my shoes and my pants shoes side by side and pants carefully folded there and grabbed right on Even then, without knowing it, I was condemned to obsession, to lunacy, and to death without knowing it. And praise God, I'm the increasing communication of our society. That potentials like me are not coming to a younger folks, just getting in. Where it begins to hurt, but already faithful, unless they think. Let me take this quickly into the climax. You know it. Boom and bust in Wall Street. Try to get a toll. Nobody has me. Lois and I become alone. We drift down into the cold attack. We come today in the hospital. When dear old doctor still works. Who like Dr. Young and thought I might be one of those brothers. I really wanted to stop. Was it blind to tell Lloyd? And even greater class than Dr. Young and Carl Rowan. I'm sorry, Lloyd. But he's going to be like all the rest. I thought he might be an exception. I'm sorry. You know, this habit of his thinking has become an exception. And this exception condemns him to go on against any resource I need. And something ails him, let's call it an allergy. And if he does go on, this means he gets plain damage. And presently he will be, maybe within a year. 
And I'm scared after a bit. Maybe I have gone bugged after all. To Dr. Sumjin. Well, no criticism in the profession, but I think that after hearing a yarn like this, that many doctors would have handed me a goofball and said, Bill, think nothing of it, you'll feel better tomorrow. <laughs> but after all the days, you live one day. Uh, he listened carefully. He said, no, I don't think you're crazy. Actually, I, I can sense somehow that there's a difference in you. Some great psychic event has occurred. I read about you sending the book. I've never seen it, but I, I really think you've got something here. And you better hold on. So I've been holding on and brought a lot of rent for a while now. So I started out working with them. You know, chain reactions. And with this sudden experience, we're sitting out paranoia. You know, the old Rondiaki stuff that's always done in the world. They don't think we're the who. And I lecture and I quit and I get sore and nothing happens. One day I'm up in Doc and uh, I said, Doc, they get nowhere with these drugs fast. And uh, well, he said, uh, maybe you got the car before the horn. Maybe try to get them too good by Thursday. And if they're going to get that good by Thursday or even 10 years from Thursday, you got to give them a little more incentive, Bill. Just talk into these people the medical hopelessness of this thing. Quoting authorities on And after you identify with them by telling their yarn and they come out to say, this is me, this is me, then give them the medical business. The next thing in our little drama is out in, or let me put it out on the folding drama. In Dowling Hanson, business deal. Some folks said I better go back to work. I like being a missionary better and was always allergic to work, but here I was. The deal falls through. And for the first time, I'm not a side of any drunks or any religious group. And I'm alone in the hotel. And I haven't got the fare home. And here was the first temptation. I'm just about the last I ever had to drink. And indeed, God had restored me to sanity because I could see the temptation for what it was. I was one of those guys who was scared of the first night, right? I just took it. This time I'm scared. And this time we get another kind of communication. We've been edging up towards it. But this time I realized that I needed another drunk. Quite as much as it could make me. So where was one? I call up one of the local preachers, drunk from New York, one drunk to work on. He said, well, gee, uh, separately, uh, you're tough numbers, but to put together, I don't know. I talked to more. He gave me a list of nine people. I called him up at the end of the list. It's one, non-alcoholic gal, beer Henrietta Shibling, who cared enough, who understood enough, said, come out here. I think I've got just the man you talk to. I came out. There she stood in the door. She invited me in. 
We sat him in a said he's a doctor in this town. Doctor Bond. There's constipation. He's lost his standing as a surgeon. Everybody's a nervous wreck. He's wanted to stop for years. Doesn't seem to know how. Shall I call up? Well, it's Mother's Day. And he had a call up dear Annie Smith from down the line. Henry Evans says he's a man here from New York. Maybe he's got a cure for alcoholism. And Annie said, well, gee, that's fine. It's Mother's Day. Bob has bought me a potted plant. He's potted on the table, under the table, and he can't get out. Next day, over came Dr. Bob. And this time, there was a new quality in our communication. And this quality was that of completion as well. This time, no police. He needed the other. And another great part there. And I went to Dr. Hobbs, Bob's house, to live. Ann was one of those prudent people who thought I might keep an eye on the old boy. And after one little episode, he said to me, Bill, we, we just better get to work hard with son. So he called up the city hospital. The head nurse said, we got a dandy lawyer around here. Been in there six times for four months. And get home even without getting drunk. Knocked down one of the nurses. We got him strapped. We got the DTs. How will that one do you? Bob says this is wonderful. Put him in a room and give him some goofballs and we'll be down when he eats. So we get down and here was the first visit in a hospital. And this boy looked at nice old Bill, A number three to B. And old Bill said after listening to us, well, you're the first guy that I ever talked to that had any idea what this was all about. So, as I had forwarded into Dr. Bob about the medical hopelessness of this thing, once we made the identification, we poured it into Bill, and that lowered him down to an octave further. With this lowering process, uh, well, he was like a meatball. He didn't seem to bounce. <laughs> Bill said that it's late for me. Oh, yeah, I got faith, but that's not faith in me. We said, would you like to come back, Bill? He said, you better I would. I, I don't believe it will help us. Uh, I don't feel quite so much alone. The next morning, we came in. And again, the unique and mysterious communication. Had it been at work during the night. Bill said to his wife, these are the fellas that know the score. Wife, get me my clothes. And we are going to get up and get out of here. And the first AA group was born at Akron in the summer of 1935. And I stayed with Dr. Bob during a good part of that summer. And it was all slow going. But 
Dan Wolf. And a picture of that little living room with Dan sitting in the corner reading out of James, his face without work, he said. Of all of our prospects, drunks and sober, coming in every morning or every two hours. Of that old coffee pot that he may come today. These are men. And I think that it is appropriate now for us to pause for a silence in gratitude for Dr. Bob and Ann and what they were about to be and to do. And after a little meditation about that, I'd like to read to you a short resolution, which I hope is in the language of the heart, that I composed for adoption of our board of trustees when Dr. Bob died. And we said it to young Bob, too. So we bow on his death. Dr. Bob, in the morning. Alcoholics Anonymous, herein records his timeless gratitude for the life and work of Dr. Robert Holbrook as a co-founder. Known in a section as Dr. Bob, he recovered from alcoholism on June 10, 1935. In that year, he helped to form the first Alcoholics Anonymous group. This first season, he and his good wife, Anne, so well tended that its life at length traversed the world. By the day of his departure from us, November 16, 1950, he had spiritually and medically helped countless fellow sufferers. Dr. Brock was the humility that declined all honor, the integrity that brooks no compromise. His was the devotion to man and to God which in bright example will shine always. The world fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous presents this testimony of gratitude to the heirs of Dr. Bob and Anne. I, for one, think they know what we are teaching and what we are saying. May God will it so. I never had a hard word with Dr. Bob and I fought with everybody else nearly in this movement. This is the greatest tribute I can pay. Well, let us pass quickly on with the story of communication. Long about after a couple of years of it, a little group starts in New York, one starts in Cleveland. Oh, but it's so painful. It's, it's, it's so slow. Word of mouth communication. Still enough, not enough drunk sober to make enough evidence to impress the rest. 
People turning away and saying, I'm not like that. We thought that it would be a very slow business. There had to be somehow a better communication inside and outside. We had to have more customers. We had to get our story into life. Otherwise, it could become terribly dark. So we began to think in terms of a group of people that could help us, which came to be that board of trustees. We began to think in terms of that book, Alcoholics Anonymous. We couldn't raise the cent anywhere for this book, even though we were already hooked up with Mr. Rockefeller. He very wisely wisely said, money will spoil this thing, and he pretty much stuck to it. But he did give him himself, and I'll make that point. So, we began the preparation book, being a Wall Street operator. Uh, I thought right away to stop selling with drugs. My partner at that time, uh, another gent with the name of Hank, who certainly wasn't suffering from any bust appendix, really got out peddling them shares. And we manufactured the shares in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We're just getting a pen at stock certificates and writing on it, Worst Publishing Company, Ace Parker's Place. And we sold the drunks for 25 bucks a share in a book not yet written. Now I say the promotion, John Lescott. Now then, the question was, who was to write the book? And uh, I still had, uh, you know, that itching to be a number one man, although I'd never written anything in my life. So I commenced, and we labored on two, four, five chapters, and each one was a fierce kind of argument. Out in Akron, they kind of went along with it, but boy, those New York ones clobbered me from every side. The thing had come to a practical standstill, and the book had yet said what it was about, you know, kind of kind of getting up to the point, and after all, what was the point? We said what alcoholism was, and uh, into action, and uh, more the agnostic, but uh, when were we coming to grips with this thing? And I was awful weary as a louse, but uh, that situation looked better because uh, I had been appointed the umpire. Uh, that I finally listened carefully, that I finally could take a decision about it. So one night, it looked like the book had to have a backbone, and uh, the half dozen word mouth steps, you know, the ones we've just been talking about, I figured if you blew them up anymore, that this reader dropped out at the distance that we couldn't get with this brother than that. If you made a more thorough job, you couldn't wiggle out so easy. So I started breaking the six steps up into smaller pieces, and uh, at the end of the time, I found there were 12. And I said, well, that's a good, significant, kind of an apostolic number. And these were the 12 steps. And which later found favor with our great friends of religion, as both parallel to these nation exercises. I know one time I told the story of the production of the book. And our several motives stood in bad. And one drunk came up afterwards, shaking his fist, and he said, I did not believe that this great spiritual book could be produced in any such way as this. I am going out of here to get drunk, and he did. We came back. <laughs> so we had the book. 
<laughs> and we printed 5,000 of them, the money all ran out, and uh, the Reader's Digest said they were going to print a piece, and they didn't print the piece. The printer let us have 5000 for $500, which was very much on the cost. So what we're going to do with all these books, just then the landlord came along and this is that large to me, and what are we going to do? So folks kind of took us in, and uh, by and by, uh, something terrific in communication happened in sleep. First notice we could do this in quantity. About 20 drums over there, hardly dry behind the ears, a handful of experienced ones only that had picked it up in that room. We're suddenly confronted by a whole series of articles run from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and they were written uh, by a gentleman who had an inside view of the second problem, a first-hand experience. I don't think he became a member, but uh, let us say he was a fellow traveler. He really could talk to Ringo. And uh, he wrote this series of pieces, and a plane dealer got behind it and said, Folks, this is good, come and get it. Editorial every couple of days. These 20 people were obliged to take on hundreds and hundreds of calls in a matter of a month or two. And all of a sudden, the same balloon. And you take a guy into a hospital, and you go in there, he come out jittery, you take him to visit another guy, and then he was a full-blown sponsor. And they fought like the very devil, but they kept on sober enough, and the batting average went right along up when we thought that only we held it these things could administer the pulse. Yes? that we can communicate in size and improve something else. That understanding friends in press and probably later in radio and in all means of communication could speak for us in such a language that it would reach into the drunk and to his family and the general public to produce such a result. Playing along came John D., whose friends had helped us set up the still empty alcoholic foundation. The foundation was both alcoholic and empty. And all of a sudden, dear old Mr. Rickinson, I guess his first member who brought it together, John D.'s friend, came into a trustee's meeting and he said, Gentlemen, I have great news. I just had a talk with Junior. And Junior has been watching the progress of this outfit with great satisfaction. And he wants to throw it there for Alcoholics Anonymous. Here's a list of guests. Here's a list of 400 he'd like to send invitations to. And when he puts the list in front of our trunk, we looked at it and said, My God, this is worth about $5 billion. And we thought we needed a lot of dough. So I'm coming to dinner. And uh, John D. Jr. can't be there. He really was sick about that time. And he sent over Nelson, so well known nationally now. And we imported some drunk from Akron. They had some distinguished folks there. Some under command, too. Uh, 
they thinking this was a Paul Fisher deal. One of the boys at the table, we had a drunk planted at each table of the notables, and one of them turned to one of our, one of the dancers turned to one of our boys and said, well, uh, I presume, uh, Mr. Ryan, that you're in banking business. Uh, Mr. Ryan Dunk said, no, I'm just out of Greystone Sun. This kind of warm things off and it started to thaw. And it looked like the prospect was squeezing some dough out of this thing, you know, to uh, get us off the hook and get some paid missionaries and a hospital chain. Uh, these things we needed so badly. Then I've got Nelson Rockefeller speaking for his father. And he said, my father wanted you good friends to see this very promising beginning of what may be a great new thing in the world. But this is a work of good work. My father thinks money will spoil it. He just wants to let you know. And at least one billion dollars worth of millionaires got up and walked out, and they didn't leave a ten dime behind. This, Mr. Rockefeller released on the pipeline. The first figure of that time to stand up in public with this small, trembling society is the only evidence. This person who trusts us, supposing three of us have turned up their stools and said to the world, I believe in this. That was a critical, vital communication. Then came the victim. Wonderful Jack Kelly Jack. Great newspaper reporter. Served his time on the New Yorker. Moved over to the Saturday Post. Mr. Curtis Fox, the owner down there, has seen in our little Philadelphia group a couple of people get stolen. He's gone to the rest of the board, to Summers, the editor. Why don't you do a piece about this society? I believe in it. I've seen it. So Jack was a son, and Jack had just been doing the Jersey racket. So he came over and laughingly said afterward, his son was certainly in his case. And on the face of it, it just wouldn't stand. Jack was and is a very deep place. First rule, I may add a very religious side without ostentation. And he caught the communication and was scared. And I think he was seized with a desire to do all he could and the best he could, and that was the whole run. He trailed us and one of our committees around for one solid month before he passed the typewriter at all. And then he tapped out that seat. Oh, it looked a little slimy and fun. 
But it was done in the language of the heart. And when that gets destroyed, and their families, and the citizens of our country in March 1941, the impact was terrific. We had found that we could communicate to our friends. If they could understand and speak a little of our language. And Jackson speaks a lot. And the drunk poured in from all the rest. And we were plus. But as you remember, the A book published two years, years earlier said, in the last chapter of the text, the vision for you, it is our hope in future years that the traveler may avoid the temptations of the road when he reaches his destination by finding an alcoholic anonymous group. And already, twos and threes and fives of us are springing up here and there. One of these places being right here in Alabama. So the twos and threes and fives are spun up, ready to take the impact of this avalanche. And we have thought. Therefore, our survival formula our whiskey fireproofing, our release from obsession, and the beginning of our march on the road to freedom under God as a society has begun. On the 25th anniversary, marked a wonderful culmination, which, however, can only be a beginning. So may we, in God's sight, continue to be worthy of His grace in our quest for freedom. Maybe we will be worthy of public respect and confidence. And may out of this passing scene, our brother and sister's suffering, Numbering 25 million throughout the world. May we find need to communicate with them what you and I see and feel here in the presence of each other, our friends, and the Father of life.
in the AA, very small AA community of more than 20 years ago. He was the first one to organize a public meeting in Los Angeles. He established the practice of reading the 12 steps before each meeting, a practice which I understand is still followed in this area. He has been a devoted member of our fellowship, and it is with great pleasure that I give you Mark J. Alan, thank you. Distinguished guests, my fellow AA friends of AA, ladies and gentlemen, as I stand here tonight, my thoughts return for a brief moment to earlier AA gatherings in Southern California. To a Friday night in the early spring of 1940, when a handful of us, perhaps 10 or 12, assembled on the mezzanine floor of a hotel in downtown Los Angeles. To another evening in 1943, when less than 800 were gathered together for a memorable evening in the American Legion Stadium in Hollywood in honor of our beloved Bill. And it's still another momentous occasion. In 1948, when approximately 6,500 joined in a richly deserved tribute to our celebrated co-founders, Bill and Dr. Bob. And now tonight, as I see before me, this vast audience from every state in our blessed union, and from many foreign lands as well, I am indeed filled with pride and humility to be one of you and to be here with you. May God continue to shower his blessings upon us all. And may he continue to guide us in our service to each other and to those, and to those who may follow us. section of the podcast we talk about our lives in recovery how recovery works in 
our daily lives, and in our meetings. It's been a pretty quiet week for me, although it did include Christmas, which was quiet for us. So our one child was not able to make it from Colorado. We had our daughter and her boyfriend for a brief celebration of Christmas on Christmas Day and uh, a game, played a game that uh, my wife gave me and they stayed for dinner. And besides, other than that, it's been the two of us plus our dog. I'm taking the full week off between Christmas and New Year's. I had the, the time available in my work schedule. And in fact, if I didn't take those days, I would not be able to carry them over to the next year. In consequence, there hasn't been a lot going on, which is nice. We did have our annual sort of end slash beginning of the year church service. The service runs in in three steps, effectively. We're given three pieces of paper as we enter, and we are encouraged to write on the first piece of paper something or some things that we wish to let go of from the year ending. And we then destroy that piece of paper. Uh, in past years, we've done this by it was uh, we were given what's called sometimes called spy paper that dissolves in water. So there were big bowls of water at the front, and we could walk up and drop the the paper in the water and watch it dissolve. This year, we were encouraged to rip it into small pieces or crumple it up as we threw it into the bowl, and they promised that everything would be run through as they called it the sacred shredder, so that nobody would read what we had written. It was for us alone to let go of. And on the next piece of paper, we were to write an intention for ourselves for the new year. Not a resolution, not a promise, but an intention. Because an intention is something that when you don't live up to it, you can renew it. It's not, it's not something that you fail at. It's just, you know, it's, it's something you intend. Yeah. Um, then on the third piece of paper, we were to write a wish for the new year for another person. And those were collected and then redistributed effectively randomly. It's a nice ritual of, of ending and then looking forward that uh, we do. Well, we've done it every year for the past several years. And, and I like it. And, and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, come to expect it, I guess. And it, and it really is a, a nice little, just sort of a spiritual thing to do to take a few minutes to think about what I want to let go of and what I want to look forward to and to, to give somebody else that gift and to receive from somebody who I don't know who it was a gift of a wish for for my life in the in the coming year. And I think that's that's about it. It's been like I said, it's been a quiet week. Next week we'll be discussing concept five. Eric called me, said, Wow, it was the fifth Sunday and we had when we have a fifth Sunday we study one of the concepts in the meeting and we did concept five and it was amazing. And I was like, well, okay, let's do an episode. I mean, I talked about Concept 5 with Akila um, back in, ooh, I don't know, 2014 maybe, something like that. 
So, it doesn't hurt to come back around. Concept 5 says, The rights of appeal and petition protect minorities and ensure that they be heard. That sounds like something that's kind of important when you're trying to run a, a program like Al-Anon where there aren't really rules. There is not strict organization that everybody's voice has a right to be heard. So I'll be interested to see where that conversation goes. But think about that. What what might this concept mean for you in your daily living, in your interaction with other people, in, in your family or in your work? If you have thoughts on that, please email or phone with uh, with your thoughts on, on Concept 5. I'm also soliciting shares on two other topics we've talked about before. One is being a man in Al-Anon. As a man in Al-Anon, what, what have been issues for you, plus or minus, I guess? As we know, demographically, most members of Al-Anon are women. So sometimes it may be hard to, for example, find a sponsor. Um, what else? And the other topic that, that somebody suggested that I need to ask for contributions because I don't qualify is being a double winner in the program. Again, how have you been received? How do you preserve your anonymity as a member of another program? Or do you? Does that maybe cause issues in your meeting when you say, well, I'm also in this other program, or I'm also an alcoholic, or I'm also an addict? Do you see those looks on people's faces? Let me know. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can call right now, 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation with your voice from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send an email to feedback at therecovery.show. We would love to hear from you. If you have questions or shares or a topic you'd like us to talk about or you'd like to be a guest host, let us know. And if you're interested in being a guest host, I would prefer that you send me an email because the scheduling and so on works by email. And our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the resources that we mentioned, and so on. So check it out. Grace left us a voicemail. Hi, this is Grace from Texas. I've been going to Al-Anon for about 10 months, but find that it doesn't really meet my needs completely. A good friend suggested ACA, and I've listened to your podcast today on ACA meetings. I will be seeking an ACA phone meeting. As I live in the country, there's very few Al-Anon meetings less than an hour away. There are no ACA meetings within an hour. I get pretty isolated because of being in the country and having a lot of health issues. I want to say that I appreciate what you do 
And I especially connected with the comment that your voice is very soothing. I have been a mentor at a women's prison for the last 15 years, and that's one thing that these women comment is that they find my voice soothing. To me, this is mind-boggling. It's an amazing witness to God's healing in my life because I did not grow up in a peaceful home. I grew up in a violent home. I just want to say thank you again. Thank you, Grace, for for sharing your situation with us. Um, I have posted a link to phone meetings on the ACA website in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 312 slash 312. If anybody else might be looking for such a thing, and ACA also, I believe, has online meetings, which are uh, listed on their website as well. Alina sent a share about her first meeting in reference to episode 26 about first meetings. Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 26 about our first meeting and... I've been in Al-Anon, gosh, I need to count, probably six or six, close to maybe seven years. And I do remember the first time I went to a meeting, and it was actually my qualifier's mother that, you know, was desperate and wanted to go. She was really worried about me, and she wasn't in a good state either, and I think that she wanted to go just to kind of get our minds off things. Because at the time, our qualifier was out like on the street. We didn't know where he was. And it was a really, really hard time. And I've never experienced anything like this before. And, you know, now that I think about it, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. And I was only really, actually, he was only in my life up until probably I was eight. And then I saw him periodically up until I was 12. And then I didn't see him my whole rest of my childhood up until when I got married when I was 23. And I saw him for a brief time. And, you know, now that I look back on it, I did have a lot of hate and resentment towards my dad. And, you know, Al-Anon's helped me to let go of that. And although I never got the chance to meet with my dad again, because he passed away a few years back, you know, I just, I can be at peace with that. And so as far as my first meeting goes, I remember going and it's always been one of my favorite meetings on Saturday. You know, we went three times together, my qualifiers, mom and myself. And after that, she just seemed to not go anymore. I don't know if she just didn't get anything out of it. You know, the shares that I heard and the message that was carried was something that I really enjoyed and I got something out of it. And my heart just felt like it was mending a little bit. And I could tell that the people in the program had been through a lot of hurt like myself and had somehow overcome that or had, had, you know, the tools that they needed to help them get past those, you know, hurtful, um, times. So I definitely, you know, stayed with the meetings, um, on my own and met some great people. And to this day, I still, you know, love that meeting, but I just remember how 
I mean, I've never felt such pain like that in my life. And so when I hear people sharing about <clears throat> being desperate and crawling into those rooms and, and everything, I can totally relate to that because it is difficult and um, it's hard. It took me a while to actually share in a meeting, but, you know, once I did, I realized it wasn't all that bad. People weren't you know, eyeing me up and down and judging me. And they actually had some compassion for me and, you know, wanted the best for me. And these people barely knew me. So I did feel grateful for that. So anyways, I just wanted to share on that topic. Thank you for letting me share. Thanks, Alina. Thanks for sharing your experience. Shelley writes, hello, Spencer. Hi, Julia. Today, it's December 23rd, 2019, and I'm claiming this day as my new sobriety date after listening to this episode several times these last weeks. And I think she's referring to episode 132 that I did with Julia titled Living with Lies. Shelley continues, I'd like to explain. I've operated in enabling behaviors for most of my adult life in all sorts of relationships, not having an understanding of it until the end of my 19-year marriage to a love-functioning back-and-forth addict. Friends from the outside once told me they recognized him as someone with behaviors of a dry drunk. What was a dry drunk, I asked, and this one friend, himself the child of alcoholics, recommended a local AA meeting as there weren't any Al-Anon meetings at that time. I went twice and just felt completely out of place, had no energy to fit in as a young mother, so I wimped out to my hurt. After several losses over about four years, he quit yet another job, my father died in an accident. I had an emotional affair and we lost a baby. We tried to get counseling to help us. Not once did my husband or I speak about his past addictions or my enabling and codependent tendencies, but we did talk about our individual needs, insecurities, and fears. Eventually, though, his frustration spewed over into the home in fits of rage and the boys and I were terrified. All this time, I could see only his character faults. I denied and could not accept that his behaviors were part of a disease. After the angry fallout, long separation, and subsequent divorce, I'd say I lived pretty soberly as far as keeping my responsibilities and taking care of our four boys in his absence. Three years after the divorce, enter high-functioning alcoholic workaholic charmer. He was an old friend from a family of well-respected, hard-working people I'd grown up with, so time with him felt very safe. I knew he drank on occasion, but seriously never thought there was any chance of addiction. I was so self-deceived, so lonely, I could not see the evidence of this terrible disease or my pride, naivete, weakness. Everyone I'd question his whereabouts or push back against his control. His powerful reaction would completely level me, make me feel completely incompetent, beaten down, so utterly shameful, disrespectful. I could go on. I broke off the relationship once for three months, but allowed him back again. But the patterns of strong, gentleman-like behavior, the gifting, the care, the words, it all conditioned me to accept the relationship again. Within four months, we were married and on a good field path. But, as you know, the pattern of verbal and mental deception returned again and again and again. But thanks be to my higher power. I like to call him my highest power. He helped me find this podcast, and specifically several episodes that resound with me, like cathedral bells, you guys. I know this was lengthy, but I'm extremely thankful for your work here, prayerful today that I can find a group to attend quickly, and completely convinced that I need a sponsor, ASAP. Shelley. Well, wow. Thanks for writing, Shelley. I wish you the best of recovery. 
Carol wrote with a question about downloading the podcast, which led me to the discovery that the download link was missing on certain size screens. This is now fixed. I also thought, you know, if you're downloading episodes so you can listen to them offline when you're, I don't know, driving or something, when you're not at home on your Wi-Fi, you might want to consider subscribing in a podcast app. At least this works on a phone or tablet. I think Mac OS has a podcast app. Apparently, I'm not sure about Windows. Uh, Most apps will download new episodes automatically and also have a way to download old episodes. On the iPhone, for example, the Apple Podcasts app is pre-installed. On an Android phone, there are many options available. I'm not an Android user, so I don't have a recommendation. The Android button on our subscription page at therecovery.show slash subscribe will show you a list of available podcast apps for Android. Of course, there's no recommendations there, just a list. So that can be maybe confusing. This is a problem with, with Android and podcasts. It just doesn't support them out of the box like like Apple does. I will also mention subscription is free. I know that word subscribe often implies paying some money, but it's absolutely free, and it lets you get the latest episode as soon as it's published. Chris writes, Hi, I'm Chris P. from Los Angeles, California. I'm so happy to have found your show. My life had become unmanageable, and when I was running in circles from one crisis to the next trying to fix my qualifier. Her addiction to alcohol took control over her life as I desperately looked for ways to solve her problems. Friends and counselors at various rehabs she entered steered me to Elanon. I rejected all of their input and tried to keep fixing everything. Thankfully, after a full year of failures trying to fix her, I started going to meetings with friends who had been in Elanon for many years. They turned me on to your podcast. I didn't realize I was in the right place until attending meetings for about three months and listening to your show. At first, the rooms freaked me out. People shared too much or had stories too similar to my own, and it made me uncomfortable. I passively started to hear the words that were shared. Things started to make sense. Her disease was not my doing. I didn't cause it, couldn't control it, nor could I fix it. There I was in the rooms with all my unresolved problems, having grown up in the alcoholic home. It came from generational alcoholism with its fair share of violence and discord. Topics I never talked about to friends or family, and certainly not in a room full of strangers. My gratitude comes from having been the beneficiary of enough recovery by attending meetings and listening to your show that I started to share my story. I got a sponsor and started working the steps. My life is not perfect, but I can now share my emotions and feelings for the first time in my adult life. There is a future that doesn't end in disaster or loneliness. My qualifier is working on her own recovery, and I can work on mine. Thank you for your service. And thanks for writing, Chris. That's an inspiring story. And mirrors my own to some extent, although I didn't grow up in obvious alcoholism, at least. But that whole, like, all these things being shared that I never talked about, oh my God, that is so, so there. listening and please keep coming back whatever your problems there are those among us who have had them too if we did not talk about a problem you are facing today feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode may understanding love and peace growing you one day at a time